Welcome to Under Construction. I'm your host, Marilyn Strickland, CEO of the Seattle Metro Chamber. In each episode, we take you behind the scenes with the people and companies shaping our evolving region. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. And if you like what you hear, please rate us and subscribe. And a special thank you to our sponsor, Alaska Airlines. Today, we are joined by Tony Mestres, the president and CEO of Seattle Foundation, one of the largest community foundations in the country and Washington State's second largest grant maker. Tony also serves on the Seattle Metro Chamber's executive committee. Welcome, Tony. Marilyn, thank you. Great to be here. So tell us a bit about the Seattle Foundation, what it does, and um, what we need to know about it. Sure. Seattle Foundation is the greater Seattle region's community philanthropy. And our mission is to ignite powerful, rewarding philanthropy to make greater Seattle a stronger, more vibrant community for all. Uh, Structurally, we represent several thousand philanthropists who gift to the foundation, and the foundation then helps them and advises them in how they can be effective philanthropically. Uh, both with our expertise in terms of the needs of the community, deep insight into the community, our partnerships, as well as at times civic leadership on issues that really matter and systems approaches to try to really get at the root causes of the challenges of our community, all with a principle and a stated value on equity. Excellent. So, Tony, for the Seattle Foundation, so is there a specific area of focus or is it really just about what your donors decide is important to them? It's balancing both of those. So we uh, really pay attention to our donors' passions, our goal, their goals, uh, their intent, and we always honor their intent. There are so many ways to be effective philanthropically. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, we try to bring them value by introducing them both to education around these the critical issues of our community, as well as uh, begin to offer to them uh, initiatives that they can consider to be part of to try to really move the needle on creating the society that I think we all we all aspire to. And to that end, you know, increasingly we have uh, three pillars that guide us, and that is a, a just democracy, an equitable economy, and a resilient environment. If you think about those together, mm-hmm. there's really a, um, a very exciting architecture of things that we can do as a community to try to, to step up to the challenges of our time. Excellent. So what excites you about the work you do at the Seattle Foundation? Clearly, you work with a lot of philanthropists. You're trying to help really guide them into their giving so it makes a huge difference. But is there something specific about the work that really makes you enthusiastic? It's incredibly exciting to to work with the community, and uh, that includes leaders uh, across the community who are working every day to try to drive greater opportunity and greater equity for all of the residents of our region. And uh, the really exciting thing about my job is that there's a tremendous diversity in my day from talking to people who uh, are often very accomplished business people who've created tremendous wealth, corporate leaders, as well as public sector mm-hmm. uh, electeds. And then at the same time, it could be an hour later that I'm I'm lucky enough to be in South Seattle with one of our partners uh, working on opportunity for kids, working on how we can actually uh, address critical issues like affordable housing, uh, like health disparities, et cetera. And it is uh, it is most inspiring when we can bridge those two worlds and uh, and really try to connect uh, the 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 wealth and the philanthropic investment and the spirit of our philanthropists with the needs of the community in an effective way. So are community foundations like Seattle Foundation common in most major metro areas or is it unique to Seattle? Well, community foundations were really born about a century ago as the primary vehicle 
for people who'd done well and wanted to give back to their community uh, to support that and to, to facilitate that. And, and uh, Seattle Foundation was founded in 1946. And many of these organizations at the time were really structured as philanthropic banks. Okay, got and, it. Uh, and there were intermediaries and facilitators of philanthropist individual interests. And we still do that, and we, that's still a very important part of our model. But what's been exciting over the last few years is that uh, community foundations like Seattle Foundation, especially in major metropolitan areas, are trying to complement that uh, intermediary role with also uh, a civic leadership role right. where we can work uh, from the philanthropic sector, from the social sector, where nonprofits are are funded by foundations like ours in partnership with government, in partnership with business, to think about how do we rewrite the playbook of a effective uh, region and, and a more equitable region. And that is an examination that is actually fascinating and going on across the country. Eighty percent right. of the, the U.S. population is in these 30 major metropolitan regions. That's true. And they're all thinking about how do we do a better job of lining up our assets against our disparities. Seattle's a, a particularly acute example of this in that not all the regions have the assets that we have from uh, socially conscious corporations that are doing incredible work. Uh, not just in the commercial space, but also as citizenship organizations, right. to uh, a real vibrancy in terms of the spirit of philanthropy, a great academic sector, uh, a very socially conscious and tolerant populace, and the, the list of assets goes on. But our scorecard of inequities as a region is not commensurate with those assets. So thinking about how do you rewrite the playbook of the role of sectors and how sectors work together effectively right. is, is a uh, fascinating, and I think critical thing for us to all be looking at. So on your website, you note that a few regions in the world really match Seattle's current growth and prosperity. What opportunities and challenges, Tony, do you think are created by this growth and prosperity? In some cases, there are communities that very desperately want growth and they would love this prosperity, but we know that there is sometimes a flip side to that as well. So what are you seeing? Well, I think that the, the clarion call of our day is is about inequality. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think the important thing for a region like Seattle that has such a, an important and thriving business sector that you're you're such a fundamental leader in, and the the challenges associated with inequality is how do we bridge those, and also how do we find common ground, common ground that uh, that really can traverse whether it's political divides or income divides, but also be very conscious of of uh, racial divides and identity divides and. And what we, I think, really hold dear is this role as bridge builder and mm-hmm. as honest broker to try to bring people together across different points of view and uh, and look for solutions. And that's a, that's a hard work. It is. It's exciting work. Uh, and it is it requires us to do things more differently than similarly to, to our past. When you think about other cities that are facing similar growth. Can you point to an example of a city either in the United States or abroad that you think is getting this right, a city that is experiencing growth, experiencing prosperity, but maybe the income divide isn't so large and maybe there aren't such disparities between different racial groups? Well, I think that one of the challenges in comparables in this regard is that in the U.S., I don't know that there is a large metropolitan area that is uh, the the true north for the rest of us that right. has cracked the code. <clears throat> Some of that code cracking is is really about uh, disrupting in a positive way the responsibilities, the accountabilities, and the practices of these different sectors. Mm-hmm. We did do a study in Seattle a few, uh, a few years ago that appreciated that there is no dissonance between uh, competitive economic growth 
and actual equitable outcomes for our people if mm-hmm. we recognize as a region right. that investing in education, right. ensuring uh, dignity in things like housing, investing in equitable health, health outcomes actually drives global economic competitiveness as a region. And uh, I think that more and more of the business leaders in our region are beginning to appreciate that. Uh, it's important that we all appreciate that. There's any notion that uh, some are doing well and it's too bad that others are not, but at least we're in this category that are doing well, is actually not only, I think, counter to many of our human principles and values, but it's actually counter to the most recent economic studies associated with how to be a globally competitive region. Right. Uh, I think we all look south to, to California as the you know, the ghost of Christmas future in a way in terms of what happens to a region if you do not, in fact, get in front of that opportunity. Right. And uh, if, you, if you let the fabric of your community uh, get ripped asunder by that kind of inequality and don't address it in the right way, uh, then uh, it takes, you know, a quarter of a century, a half a century to dig out of that hole. And right. that's not something I think Seattle wants to to face. No, and it's interesting, too, because I think when, you know, what you said, Tony, is like you know, economic growth doesn't have to be a bad thing. In fact, you should take it and harness it and think about what you're doing with that growth to make things better for the residents. And, you, and we know, too, yes, it's economic growth, but it's also, you know, land use. Right. It doesn't allow more housing to be built. It's lack of access to transportation. And in many cases, it's wages not keeping up with the cost of living. And so it's a combination of things. But how are we able to come together across different sectors, have a thoughtful conversation and say, what, is, what role does everyone play? The, I think, most galvanizing and bridge-building common or universal gain that uh, that can that can help us come together is, I think, around jobs. It's around economic inclusion, right. and it's to say, I think we know that that the Seattle region has uh, many unfilled family wage career paths uh, job opportunities, and we have many people who are deeply and desperately in need mm-hmm. of those types of opportunities. But we have a breakdown in terms of how we have supported those people to be, in fact ready and hireable by those companies, large and small, for right. for those jobs that can give themselves and their families, and in some ways you could argue generations ahead of them, opportunity that is this notion of an American dream. Right. You know, and I talked about this. I was in a video that you all did for your Seattle Commons project, and I talked about the significance of intergenerational wealth or lack thereof that has an impact on how people are able to do today. Well, what's what's sort of fascinating is if you're if you do the type of work that my team and I and our partners do, one of the things you study is in fact wealth. And wealth is growing at 8 or 9% right now right. in our country and only about 1.2% of that is going towards any type of social good. So in in effective terms, generosity in our country is declining relative to wealth creation. And over the next 30 years, there will be more wealth transferred, estimated at between 30 and $40 trillion, than cumulatively in any time in human history. Interesting. So we've, we've got this, uh, this circumstance in our hands where we have a, uh, essentially a capitalist democracy that uh, has many great things to it, but needs some guidance right. in terms of how it can actually really live the things that I think we all hold to be important. 
So I'm going to switch gears a bit. Tony, you were a speaker at the 2019 Regional Leadership Conference that the Seattle Metro Chamber hosted, and it's our annual retreat for business and civic leaders. And this year, our theme was Dynamic Leadership, Real Talk. And you gave a presentation. It was fun. It was fun, and it was memorable, and we still talk about it to this day and use your theme in meetings. And you, you talked about Seattle Real versus Seattle Nice, and it really did make a lasting impression. So can you, for our listeners, explain to us what these concepts are and what some of the guiding principles are? Sure. And and just to set the stage, and I so appreciated your giving me an opportunity to to do this, it it was a notion that so much of our challenge in lining up our assets against our disparities and in, in bridging these divides and coming together as a community is about how we work together, how we talk to each other. And we, we you and I have talked about this, we all joke about the, the Seattle nice moniker of, you know, sort of embodying passive aggressiveness or, or an inability to actually work issues together. So uh, the, you know, Seattle nice as as a... Uh, an opportunity for us to address has some real dysfunctions to it. And right. that includes uh, things like dodging discomfort and um, and not really getting at the real issues that we need to talk about. Uh, uh, dividing by othering, you know, really try... Will you talk more about that? The dividing by othering? Yes, sure, please. absolutely. The, I think that Seattle, um, unfortunately, but I'll put it in terms of opportunity, uh, has a real challenge in terms of creating... Uh, little we's. So, you know, there's a there's a great thinker uh, who started his career at UC Berkeley uh, named John Powell. And, and, and uh, Dr. Powell talks about how at a time in human history where you've got accelerated change, you've got accelerated anxiety. Right. And when people go, you know, go into that anxiety, they drop into fight or flight and they are in a, a state of insecurity the, the thing that human beings do is we seek people like us, right. people who look like us, people who think like us, people yep. who uh, live their lives like us. And uh, that gives us comfort. And then we can, when we're fearful, point fingers at people who are different from who are, us. Who are the other. Who are the other. Right. And uh, the the notion that some social science thinkers and, and philosophers and, and others have about this problem is that we are, because of accelerated change around things like technology and uh, and globalization and migration and, and the list goes on, we have they have this dynamic where lots of little we's are happening. Right. And uh, that could be the end of us. That's not a good thing. No. That, that is counter to community. Well, it doesn't move us forward. It doesn't move us forward. And so... Uh, Really trying to name that, uh, and you and uh, we see it every day in the work I do every day. Sure. I, I hear business leaders uh, describe disdain for government. I hear government leaders do the same back in the other direction, and then you get into even more uh, wounded spaces around issues like race right. and income and faith, mm-hmm. and and we see uh, unfortunately more and more of this uh, evolving. Uh, sometimes in very tragic ways yeah. in the news every day. And, you know, that goes alongside dysfunctions like flying solo, doing your own thing, saying, I'm going to figure this out. I'm not going to work with somebody else. Right. And, uh, and you know, accepting uh, on our list of dysfunctions with Seattle Nice is accepting loose logic and and not being fact-based and not being informed by uh, by really important points of view. And then we just, uh, we grasp and we grasp at uh, 
our own notion, our opinions, our, echo our convictions, our our adamant absolutism about right versus wrong. Right. So what we t- we discussed was this <laughs> this antidote to Seattle nice and those dysfunctions, which we 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 name plated Seattle real, and it includes behaviors that will help us break through, like uh, recognizing that you know you should have brutal honesty uh, without brutality, and that being direct. With someone is in fact being respectful to exactly. them. Exactly, and you know we we I think j- joked about how how many times people will walk out of a meeting and hear somebody say, "I didn't want to say this in the meeting, but," and the 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 real um, both lack of respect that comes with that, sure, and that there's a way to be direct with people without being um, uh, uh, insulting or without assassinating or character or disrespectful. Sure. Uh, seeking the we, you know, how do we actually? look for bridge building and mutuality in terms of our common goals. We may uh, come from different circumstances, different lived experiences, have different challenges, uh, be in different positions, especially relative to power, but to come together. And by doing that, really go further together. Seek uh, when you're trying to deal with a uh, complex problem. One of my mentors is fond of saying, if your solution only involves you, then you have either badly designed the, the solution or you are, are comfortable with failing. Right. And, and and I think that that, especially for the work that you do leading the chamber and the work that I do, that is every day a reminder that we may think we've got it figured out, but we better reach out to people and That's especially right. reach out to the communities that we're trying and, to And sometimes support. reaching out to the people that we know don't necessarily agree with us. I just right. think that, you know, you just get a better outcome when you at least have the capacity to listen to all points of view. It's just harder. It is harder, and, and, and it but, takes a lot of work. But it, it should be. Uh, I think that the the you know the example around, especially our homelessness challenge mm-hmm. of uh, separating fact from fiction, is mm-hmm. a very important thing. There's Indeed. a lot of stereotyping and mythology associated with unsheltered residents and why they're in that position and what we need to do to uh, to try to address that. Uh, and then finally. Practicing compassionate curiosity and and coming to some of these debates, some of this this principled conflict, mm-hmm. from a point of view of of listening and learning and trying to understand first before asserting one's uh, one's position. Without that, and that that that's a reminder of a really important thinker uh, in the space of how to make a region effective. Is a guy named Manuel Pastor, and he says that regions need three things: they need roots and relationships, they need data and deliberation. And they need principled conflict. I think you have another set of cards that we're going to have at the office now, Tony. So get get that printed up for us so we can start preaching that as well. You're listening to Under Construction with Marilyn Strickland. A special thank you to our sponsor, Alaska Airlines. With the most flights from the West Coast of any other airline, local to global connections, award-winning customer service and travel rewards, and a commitment to community and sustainability, You'll fly smart and land happy with Alaska. A while ago, you wrote a piece that talked about the gap between our region's perception of ourselves as generous and then the actual reality that here we collectively give about 3% of our personal income, which puts us below the national average of 3.3%. Can you talk about what you think is going on here and what advice would you give to our listeners who hear that data point and are surprised by it? Yeah, it's a, it's a surprising data point and there's a lot to it. So the first thing is, you know, when you think about the comparables, and these are just in, in absolute dollars right. or percentage of income terms, um, Spokane, 3.4% of their annual income. Uh, 
Phoenix, Arizona, 4.6%. You know, th- we are, we're low in the pack, you know, compared to compared not to only some, our yeah. principles and our practices and our, and our, you know, spirit of innovation and, and all the things that I think we should congratulate ourselves for, but maybe we sometimes over-congratulate ourselves for. Sure. Uh, and then when I wrote that piece, one of the things that was most surprising to me as I read, I know you know this, Merlin, from your background, both as, as, a, as a mayor and in the role you're in now, if you, re- if you write something publicly, um, have a glass of wine or a big drink of water and then read all the comments. No. Oh, I, was, I used to say, don't read the comments. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> either mistakenly or bravely, I, I read the comments. And the, the thing that was fascinating about the comments, there are actually a lot of, of comments that, that um, appreciated it and yeah. thought it was a challenge. And then some of the comments, there was a large number of comments that conflated being taxed with being charitable. Oh, interesting. And what the comments, the comments sort of surfaced this sense of hopelessness. What, what, what Was it in the context of I give enough already through taxes? Why would I be philanthropic? Not only that, but I give enough already through taxes and I'm not happy about how the money is being spent. So why should I be giving more Charitably, and so we 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 double clicked on that and studied it more, yeah. and actually surfaced what we've seen in other parts of the country, which is when people do not have confidence mm-hmm. in in the way that their taxes are being spent, that actually has a knock-on negative effect to their charitability, uh, to their generosity, which I had thought was the opposite. I yeah. had thought people might think, well, if I'm not if I'm not satisfied with how how my taxes are being right. spent, I I'm going to take my destiny into my own hands and I'm going to give more charitably to try to compensate for that. Not in fact the case. Uh, I think the other thing that that the article helps us see is that the gap or the philanthropy gap, the generosity gap, is is not as simple as greed. It's not as simple as a lack of willingness. It's actually in many respects a challenge to give away money effectively, and it's especially a big challenge to give money, large amounts of money away effectively. Right. And when you study the the wealth that is being uh, deployed towards social good, uh, one of the things you see is that large giving goes to great universities, great hospitals, uh, great large arts organizations. Right. We think that's terrific. We, we Seattle Foundation, sure. believe in those institutions. There luckily is a lot more uh, wealth that is on the sidelines for us to uh, to focus on. But when you're thinking about the the community writ large, what you have is a large ecosystem of nonprofit organizations that uh, are uh, in, they've been essentially starved of capacity in many ways. So uh, they are not necessarily always in a position. Uh, in the minds of the funder or in the minds of the of the organization mm-hmm. to receive lots of large gifts. Interesting. And Be- because when you receive something, it's like, well, now what am I going to do with this? Do I have the infrastructure and it the can capacity? Swa- it can swamp the boat. Yep. Now, a lot of nonprofit leaders will fairly say, don't worry, we'll figure <laughs> don't worry that we'll figure out. how to spend the money, right? But there is still a, there is still a challenge to yeah. that. And part of what Seattle Foundation is doing with our partners uh, in the nonprofit community is thinking about ways in which we can build infrastructure that will earn much larger investments from wealth builders into our community mm-hmm. and give those uh, those wealth builders uh, the confidence that those large investments are, in fact, uh, being put to good use right. and, and that those strategies deal with some you know, fundamental philanthropic fumbles. Right. And one of the fumbles is not uh, being conscious and intentional about weighting intervention strategies mm-hmm. with prevention and systems reinvention strategies. Right. 
Uh, and then similarly, also not flying solo, you know, recognizing that in order to be effective, there, the, one of the, the uh, standard patterns in philanthropy is that uh, people who've been very successful, for example, in building a company and, mm-hmm. and gaining a lot of wealth have a perfectly understandable notion, well, I've tackled this bigger, big commercial problem. Sure. I'm now going to tackle this big social problem, and I'm an innovator, and I can do it. And I'll just, I, I know how this should be done. Exactly. <laughs> and we try to, to you know, in, in a way that is, is su- uh, supportive and productive, help educate people that that is not actually corollary, that in, in, the, in the world of addressing some of these massive social systems challenges, right. you really do need to seek partnerships with others who are involved in it, who have knowledge in it, who've made mistakes in it, uh, and, and so on. So some of it's infrastructure, some of it is, uh, is actually uh, having really good vehicles for investment. You know, one corollary I use, I remember the Puget Sound Business Journal interviewed me, I think, before I took this job, and they said, and they asked me a question. They said, should government be run like business? And I said, no. They serve exactly. two very different purposes. Exactly. So I think, you know, to that And point. the difference, I mean, I, I spent 22 years in the private sector yeah. when I, I was uh, at Microsoft, and uh, I, I, the transition to the social sector... Uh, yes, it's true that I have a business card yeah. and I get a bay- paycheck yeah. and my and team is in a building revenues. and I have expenses yeah. and revenue, but it is far more different than it is similar in that you know, the private sector has has a number of things like market forces. Market yeah. forces are very organizing. Yes, they are. Profitability and valuation yeah. and competitive share. Uh, they help clean up the the industry or ecosystem that mm-hmm. you might be in. They help provide a very unambiguous uh, true north to what your organization is trying to achieve. Yeah. I'm not saying the business is not complicated. Business is incredibly complicated, but that organization of a of market forces is something that in the social sector you don't have. In right. the public sector, you actually don't have. Yeah. Some could say electability in the public sector is the market force. Right. You could argue that's not necessarily working that well. Yeah. Some would say that in the social sector, being funded is the market force. But we know that many organizations' uh, effectiveness is not actually commensurate with, with, the funding. with their funding. Yep. So I want to take this back now to personal Tony. Okay. So let's go back a bit. Tell us, are you are you a Seattle native? I am not. I was born on a small island in the Atlantic called Manhattan. <laughs> How many people lived there when you were born? <laughs> Just a few less than now. Just a few less than now. And tell us about what it was like growing up. So you grew up in Manhattan. <clears throat> what neighborhood? Um, yeah. any, any challenges your family faced? Tell us about your childhood. Well, what was interesting about my my upbringing is that uh, this uh, go back a generation okay. or two. Um, my my uh, father's side of the family came to the U.S. Uh, from Mexico. My grandfather was born in Tampico, Mexico, and uh, and then my mother's side of the family from Ireland. So I am an interesting combination of Irish, Mexican, American in terms of my family lineage. Yep. And um, one of the things that occurred in my in my grandfather's lifetime uh, and his father was that the family went from really uh, very poor circumstances to partly by the, by the benefit of a philanthropist who helped support my grandfather's mm-hmm. education to a place where my family was able to experience some of the American dream. And that, that also happened to an extent on the Irish side. And mm-hmm. the, one of the things that I think is amazing about that is that I grew up with a tremendous amount of opportunity because I was the beneficiary right. of that journey. And, uh, and so I grew up in New York City at a time when New York was almost bankrupt, uh, there were cars burning in the streets. There uh, was a tremendous amount of uh, just systems dysfunction and breakdown. Right. And 
And yet it was also an amazing place where I learned things about uh, community in that uh, one of the things I appreciated is that you know New Yorkers all felt like no matter who you are, if you're a New Yorker, you're part of the community. Right. And um, and this is a this is an era where investment bankers would ride the subway to work, and yeah. uh, and I was taught by my father Ricardo Mestres to uh, to treat everyone with uh, respect, regardless of their their background, their upbringing. But I also had the experience of uh, of recognizing this incredible inequality that was going on, mm-hmm. and you know, the homeless problem in the '70s and early '80s in New York City was was at the same level of amplification that we are now experiencing right. here in Seattle, and uh, and that caused me to start to think about uh, what was the journey of my life and how I was going to start to participate right. in in making the world a better place in whatever way I could contribute. So under your leadership, Tony, Seattle Foundation has really focused on advancing racial equity and economic inclusion through policy change at local and state levels. So can you talk about maybe the one specific policy change that you want to see or you've seen that you feel good about? We've been very focused on uh, equitable investment in in education mm-hmm. and making sure that uh, uh, the schools that are uh, supporting kids who are most marginalized have the appropriate amount of investment right. in them to uh, to really serve those kids uh, effectively, and uh, and we do a lot of work with uh, regard to the census, uh, mm-hmm. independent completely yep. of uh, politics. We know that uh, for every person not counted by the census, it will cost our state about twenty thousand dollars in federal funding. Yes, it will. So we want to make sure that everyone is counted, and that that also goes to uh, a democracy that is just for all, where all voices can be heard and we can make the right uh, decisions uh, associated with that. I think the most exciting new area of policy exploration has to do with how do we get out of this uh, head tax-like debate right. where we can recognize that there are things we need to do to support business in being successful and that 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 at the same time, if we make the right kinds of investments in our community, right. that 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 has good ROI. Right, and we can we can actually address some needs if we, we have a plan. We and can think actually about how address we can do the it. needs. Yeah. and uh, I think that uh, if we can, you know, practice Seattle real uh-huh. and not Seattle nice, and have more effective discussions between uh, business, government, hopefully helped by both philanthropy yes. and the social sector and bridging some of those worlds. And some of those things are happening now. They we are. just you know we have a regional homeless authority that's being created or has been approved and so hopefully you know that's a good example of saying yes we we got everyone together. We have you know setting this up we had people with lived experience, we had social service providers so a lot of people were involved at the table who have expertise, resources and trying to say like you know we know we can do this exactly. but we have to get together and it's going to be a long hard journey. That's right. No, that's right. And the, so the, I think this next era for us. I am hopeful. I put my feet on the ground every day, optimistic about Seattle mm-hmm. in in almost every way because we have all of the ingredients. We have all the Legos are dumped out on the table. Right. We just have to build this together. And, uh, and I think that that is about practicing new ways of working together, mm-hmm. recognizing the need to do things cross-sector, recognizing that we have so many mutual goals, right. independent of politics, sure. independent of lived experience. Yep. 
uh, but we got to do it. And it requires a lot of rolling up your sleeves, not locking your knees, hydrating. Yeah, yeah. a lot of hard conversations, exactly. but it's possible. So this is my lightning round where I ask <laughs> folks our, our, our same set of I was questions. told this was coming. It's going to be fun. So, Tony, what's the last concert you attended? The last concert I attended was for an all-female uh, tribute ACDC tribute band. Hell's Bells. <laughs> Hell's Bells in in Boulder, Colorado. I love it. Have you seen Hell's Bells? Oh, I know Hell's Bells. <laughs> <laughs> I recommend it to everyone. They're really actually I think they're better than the band. <laughs> they, they are actually in several. They're definitely more sober than the band in, in certain circumstances. So in all your spare time, you have time to binge watch TV? Is there a show that you're watching right now or one you recommend to our well, listeners? You know, whenever you get asked this question, you think you have to make up an answer. No. Right? Or, no or it has I, to be a specific time. Type of answer. Uh, yeah, the, the the show I'm watching right now is called The Watchmen on HBO. It's tricky and it's trippy. It's it's a real. I really highly recommend it. So Maggie, our producer, and I were talking about this in the cab on the way home last time, and I just told her, "It's like I've tried, but it's like I'm. It's just it's a little too sophisticated for me because I don't know the comic book story very well, and so I've made a couple of attempts, but all the reviews I read are just keep going. People don't give just, up, Marilyn. That's, it's supposed to be remarkable, and Regina King is supposed to be amazing. She is. Yeah. She is indeed. You've heard me ask this before. You're up to bat. It's the bottom of the ninth. Bases are loaded, and you want to get up there and have a walk-up song to psych out the pitcher. What's your walk-up song, Tony Mestris? I knew this was coming. My team was sending me all kinds of suggestions, <laughs> which I'm ignoring. Right. Um, the one I thought of was uh, Ennio Morricone's The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly uh, <laughs> from from the Spaghetti Western with Clint Eastwood. I'm going with that one. You know, and that's a very recognizable song. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you, Tony, for joining us on Under Construction today. Marilyn, it's a great pleasure. You've been listening to Under Construction with Marilyn Strickland. Thanks for listening in, and we hope you return. Special thank you to our producers, Alicia Teal and Maggie Wilson of the Seattle Metro Chamber and our engineers at Cloud Studios here in Seattle. And thank you to our sponsor, Alaska Airlines. To learn more about the podcast, visit seattlechamber.com underconstruction. And stay in touch. Follow the Seattle Metropolitan Chamber of Commerce on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Seattle Chamber.